Hallelujah. Father, in our prayer today, as we transition to the Word, we confess the truth of this song once again, that there is nothing in this world that can compare to you. There's not a, no God above you. There's no God beside you. There's no one who could aspire even to come close to the character and the magnificence and the glory and the power and the majesty and the fearsome wrath and anger you have towards the wickedness and then the holy and awesome mercy and grace that you purchase at the cost of your son's own blood. There is none like our God. Truly, we could search the heavens above, the earth below, and the depths of the oceans for the end till the end of days and never find anyone to compare. And in fact, all the while, would be looking in the world that you yourself have made that testifies to your glory and exists according to your sovereign plan and at your mercy and serves to bring praise and worship to the maker, creator, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the one who is holy, just, and true, and righteous in all his ways. So we give glory and honor to the King of kings and the Lord of lords as we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this service today. And now as we turn in our attention to your holy word, I pray that you would tune the ears of our spiritual understanding, our spiritual eyesight, to behold and to change according to the precepts wherein we see ourselves reflected. Lord, I pray that as we see the law convicting us of our sin, we would repent and trust the blood of Jesus to wash it away. And as we see your word laying for us the paths of righteousness to walk in, that we would walk in them according to the Spirit. And as we see your great gospel proclaimed, that we would bow before Jesus Christ, the only way, truth, and life. In all of this, may you be glorified, your church equipped, and your kingdom grow to the praise of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity we have this morning to join in the common cause of lifting up the glories of Jesus Christ our Lord. To worship him together and to consider reverently and with fear and with rejoicing and relief the gospel from his holy word. Turn with me as you're able to 1 Peter chapter 1. This our first Sunday of the month, also our communion service, and continuing in our, did I say 1 Peter? Our, actually, it's 2 Peter. Continuing in our 1 and 2 Peter series. Our text today is 2 Peter 1, verses 8 through 15, primarily. We'll read 5 through 8, 15 in a moment. 8 through 15, we'll read 5 through 15 in a moment. The title of this morning's message is Established in Truth. And this phrase comes from verse 12 where Peter gives his intention for writing. And again, Peter's an apostle. His audience is an early church, much like ours. Just rewind about 2,000 years and imagine a handful of Christians in a world of unbelief. And you have a scenario that Peter's writing to. He says, I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter is writing to a church that is established in the truth. That means that they are fixed, they are firm, they have a foundation. They are unshakable so long as they remain in that place of stability, namely on the truth of God's word revealed in Jesus Christ and recorded in the scriptures and believed in the heart of each member of this early church. And may we, may it be our prayer that we ourselves would be established in the truth. And the purpose of this message is to establish us, in fact, to greater degree, to reinforce the church by proper means. 
that we, like the early church, might be found faithful at the day of trial because we place our hope in Jesus Christ. With that introduction, with your Bible open, or at least your attention drawn to the screen in front of you, would you stand as you're able out of reverence for God's Word? And let us hear today the Holy Scriptures, which proclaim to us the immortal truth of a holy God. This is 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5 through 15. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Peter's words to the early church in his second epistle include three things that we'll identify and focus on especially the second this morning. Number one, this is the theme of our last message from this text, a prescription of supplements. So imagine, as we used the analogy before, a nutritionist or a doctor assesses your health and prescribes to you some supplements. What are supplements in this application? Well, they are things that will fortify you, strengthen, come alongside, give you assistance in your health, your uh, well-being, your physical, um, you know, uh, perhaps you're recovering from an illness and so physical healing and stuff might depend on getting some of these necessary fortifying supplements or medicine. So in a similar way, Peter is prescribing supplements for faith, that is, ways to fortify, to come alongside with necessary elements to equip the church to stand strong when their faith is challenged. Without these fortifications, their church will be weak. She will atrophy. She will be ineffective and unfruitful, Peter goes on to say. So that's the first element, a prescription of supplements to fortify believers. And the second element, this is followed by a description of their benefits. So what is the benefit of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness? All these, you know, almost like reading the ingredients list on the back of a bottle, steadfastness, godliness, affection, and love. Well, if you imbibe these qualities, if these are yours and are increasing, then, among other things, you will be effective and fruitful. That is to say, that's just the negation of what he says. If you lack them, you will be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of God. So what do we have? Again, prescription of the supplements necessary to fortify believers. Secondly, a description of their benefits. And then thirdly, we have a conviction or a commitment to remind the church of these things so long as God sustains him. 
That is to say, for Peter, these are so important that as long as he has breath in his lungs and God has given him a few more years, we don't know how long, perhaps or less, as an apostle to influence the church, he determines by priority to always remind the church of these qualities. Though they have them and are established in the truth, or though you have know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. So we have by these categories an understanding of the importance of Peter's words, do we not? We have the what is prescribed to us that we might stand much as, in as much as we can relate to this early church in days when our faith is challenged. And we also have a description, what to expect, the benefits that flow from walking in our faith in this way. And thirdly, we find how important they were. So important, in fact, that the mission of a dying apostle is going to be given exclusively to reiterating these things. So with this, we can get a sense of the context and the significance of these words as Peter writes. Now, we can relate to this church, can we not? So his words, Peter's words, anticipate times of trial and hardship that would attend the way of early believers. Is it easy to be a Christian today? Are there any trials and tests that attend the way of believers, Christians today, who believe that this, these words that we read, are the infallible truth of a holy God that holds men accountable, calls him to confess his sins, and prescribes only one way, truth, and life, the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation? Is that a popular message today? Will you pay a price on Facebook or social media for believing such, such things, for taking a strong stand boldly for what the Bible says is right and what the Bible says is wrong? Yes, I think by just a couple examples, we can see we can relate. We do live in a time, uh, by this and more, there of trial and hardship that attend the way of believers uh, just as it was in the first century. We experience challenges in our faith today, and therefore the apostles' instructions are universal. That means they apply at any time. They are relevant for us right now, just as they were for the small band of Christians, shining as lights in the first century, surrounded by the darkness of a pagan empire, namely Rome and the Greeks and, and their influence that characterized the culture and the suffocating influences of the powers that be and basically their neighbors' false religions and all of the different ideas, philosophies, and pagan ideals that colored the society at the time. Now, uh, this weekend, on Saturday, our church co-hosted a kind of mini-conference to address a question. And the question was, what to do when systems of power, particularly government, become corrupt in ungodliness? And I think there's many ways, if you use the scriptures as a judge, to show that there's increasing corruption and ungodliness in our own government and certainly world governments. Now, this central theme of Pastor Chuela's message for us, those who attended that conference, is that in times like these, a lesser magistrate, that is a civil officer, who may not be president, let's say, but let's say he's an official, a governor, or something like that, despite his lesser authority, ordinarily speaking, he has both the right and the duty to interpose, or to stand in the gap, or to take a stand for righteousness. And there are many examples that Pastor Matt gave us from Scripture of people doing exactly this. However, this is not a popular message, and it's even less popular in practice. And why is this? Well, it's because to take actions like this, to stand for righteousness when there's a cost to pay, requires two things at least, conviction and courage. Conviction and courage. People don't take a stand not because the truth isn't clear, 
often obscure it with a bunch of, uh, you know, needless psychobabble and justification and everything, pretend like they don't understand, but oftentimes this is just a ruse. When you get down to the real heart of the matter, it's an unwillingness, and they have neither the strength of conviction nor the courage to do the right thing at a high cost. But that is our call as believers. Now, Jesus Christ said as much. He said, blessed are you when they say all kinds of things falsely against you for my name's sake. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their dependence and oftentimes their alienated position in society. Jesus, of course, was the victim of much of the ire, mockery, and, of course, the horrible suffering, even unto the crucifixion of that cruel and shameful death on Calvary. And in this way, we see that the Bible itself has identified our calling with him and told us, don't be surprised. In fact, it is part of my call, the Lord tells us. He prescribes hardship for us. So that while we are in times like these, where a cost is required for us to follow him, we nevertheless look to Jesus as our inspiration, pray for the conviction and courage, take up our cross and follow him. This is what Peter is encouraging the church to do. He's simply giving practical counsel. He's giving real application to the charge that his master gave him. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, why do people not have courage in our day to stand for righteousness, to identify as a Christian, or to believe the Bible is absolutely true? Well, to take a stand like this oftentimes comes at a risk of personal sacrifice. A politician may lose his committee assignments if he takes a principled stand. A sheriff may be disparaged in the press if he refuses to bow for the tyrants who want to transgress the God-given and constitutionally, in many cases, recognized liberties of his uh, jurisdiction. A church may lose members if they stand for righteousness because it's not a popular message in an inclusive postmodern world. A pastor may go to jail by keeping his church open in Canada in defiance, defiance of ungodly and unjust edicts who want to use the ruse of a so-called pandemic to shut down what is far more important, namely the gathering and the assembly of the church of Jesus Christ to praise the author and finisher of their faith and the one who created the entire world and the very air that everyone breathes in the first place. I think worshiping him should take priority over fear of a virus. A healthcare worker might lose their job. You might pay a price online, as I mentioned before. Nevertheless, a godly people are called to faithfulness, even in the face of tyranny and persecution. Times like these remind us of the enduring value of spirit-inspired apostolic admonition. Times like these, shorter way to say it, remind us of the value of the Bible, of God's word, of the words we read today. Peter's exhortation, his words of correction, that is, and instruction, remind us that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is an eternal and invincible reality, it will exist forever, and you cannot destroy it. In verse 11, in this way, there will be richly provided for you. Listen to the courage you can glean from this promise. If you are a saint, if you love Jesus Christ, if you endeavor to follow him, if you seek to add your faith to these supplements, you can take courage from these words. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will last forever. It will never be defeated. Absolutely powerful. No competitors. Peter's re Peter reminds us of this kingdom 
that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rules and reigns over. Are you in that kingdom? The only way to be assured of your kingdom citizenship is if you declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ, if you trust Him and His death to wash away your sins, if you identify in His sufferings, even if it costs you the mockery of your family, your friends, a culture, a civilization, a wicked government. Peter's exhortation, again, to consider the kingdom of God and its power and invincibility helps to shape our perspective, does it not? It reminds us that there are priorities much bigger than our immediate circumstance, that short-sighted blindness that we all struggle with, and he references, and he begs us to remember that the gospel and its effects will sufficiently equip us to live in light of this truth, truth being the eternal, invincible kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a heading, and we'll have four points in brief this morning. A fortified faith yields eternal kingdom growth, eternal kingdom vision, eternal kingdom consummation, and eternal kingdom ministry. Those are my main points gleaned from the text today. A fortified faith. This uh, expounds upon the benefits of these supplements that Peter has prescribed. What do they produce? Well, among other things, Peter says, a fortified faith yields eternal kingdom growth. Now, in this heading, you'll note that I'm using this eternal kingdom as a central theme. I believe it is central because it is the most powerful reference in this text, or among the most powerful references in this text, to give us hope of the big picture. When Peter says that this, through this way, there will be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom, he's giving you the panoramic view. You know, uh, drones have become popular, and they're cheaper than a helicopter. So now all over the internet or whatever, YouTube, you can get that drone footage, right? And it really is an awesome perspective. <clears throat> when you're face-to-face -face with somebody in a crowd, you know, you can't really get your bearings often because everything's happening so close and so immediate. But when you get a drone footage, it gives you a whole different view. Imagine if you were flying over this world from the bird's-eye view of heaven. Would this declaration of unjust, you know, tyrannical authority by our current president, you know, rattle you? If you could view some little dude in a mask, feeble in his near 80s or however old Joe Biden is, you know, mumbling along in an incoherent way? I don't think so. But we are so up close and personal to the day-to-day -day events that affect us in a real way that it's sometimes hard for us to take the eternal kingdom perspective. But in times like these, where we feel under the thumb of those who hate us, despise us, or would make laws to oppose our faith, Peter gives us the drone footage, if you will. He gives us the capacity and our faith and our courage, as we said before, and our conviction to rise above the immediate fear, the immediate difficulty, the immediate pain that we often experience. We don't deny. It's a reality oftentimes of the calling. Nevertheless, through this perspective, we can grow in our courage and in our conviction. A fortified faith, in this sense, yields eternal kingdom growth. You know what Peter says in verse 8, For if these qualities, what qualities? Again, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, that we covered in our last sermon. If these things are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A fortified faith yields eternal kingdom or true church growth, you could say. It is effective. When we grow in these things, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and steadfastness, the church will grow. Now, growth, according to biblical terms, is measured differently often than we measure growth. 
Now, practically speaking, and it's kind of the default measure of growth in our society, to consider influence or numbers, popularity or power or wealth, <coughs> income. Those are ways in which we grow, are they not? After all, aren't those the basic metrics which judge the health of, a, of an economy, the vitality of a company? And if we're tempted, we could use that same metric and incorporate it in the church. We could say, oh, yeah, we're really growing the kingdom because we have more numbers. Well, not necessarily so. We have really growing the kingdom because we have more people giving, more wealth. We seem to have more influence, more likes on Facebook. But if any of these things come at the cost of being established in the truth, if we dumb down the message, if we change the scriptures and twist them and present them in a way that's more palatable to the ears of our so-called consumers, that is, if we shape scripture and twist it in a way that is more palatable, that's more the culture wants to hear, the Bible calls that twisting scripture, says it's a blasphemy to the Lord, it would fall into the category of taking his name in vain, and it is something that we must repent of. And what we repent of, in part, as the church of Jesus Christ in this land, is the lie that you must soft-pedal, change, or reinterpret, or reimagine, or apply Scripture in a way that is not in accordance with its self-revealed truth in order to grow the church. False. Now, your church growth plan may preach the words so direct that people get convicted and two, one of two things happen. Either they repent of their sin, or they're so uncomfortable sitting in that pew with unconfessed sin that they leave. That is church growth. Why? Because God purifies his bride. And he does so two ways, by moving us to repent and to come to this table, grieved in our sin and thankful that Jesus has washed it away, and counting my brothers and sisters sitting next to me, my closest spiritual family, because we share in the same experience of God taking the punishment that our wickedness deserved, and it binds us together. We may be smaller in number, but if that is the effect of diligent, godly preaching and understanding of the Holy Scriptures, that is church growth. That is effective kingdom growth, according to Peter. Now, I pray God gives us numbers. I pray God gives us a revival in this land, and he does add to our numbers. But I do not pray that he would do so at the expense of truth. Never let it be said. There are so many ways in our sin that we judge growth at the expense of the glory of God. Never let it be said. May the word of God be preached unequivocally and without adulteration and without the methods and schemes and tricks of man and let men be held accountable and fall before that measure and that standard of righteousness and be judged a guilty sinner and cry out for Jesus Christ, the only Savior and Messiah. And when men do this and women and everyone, I'm using the term generally, what they will find is the sweet relief of salvation and the glories of redemption laying claim to their own soul, and that a worship and a thankfulness and a desire to follow the master that paid such a glorious high price to purchase their soul. And they will show by their heart citizenship, adoption, and membership in the eternal, invincible kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is what effective kingdom ministry looks like. This is what effective the fortified faith yields and a church that is standing on these kinds of things yields this kind of effective growth. Church growth movements of the modern age have demonstrated themselves to be flash in the pan movements by and large. 
We've lived through a few of them. I don't know how long you've been in Christ, but I recognize, you know, a few cycles. We've sacrificed the depths and roots of real scriptural understanding for superficial metrics like numbers and notoriety, whether it's the megachurch model. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Willow Creek movement, Bill Hybels, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, uh, movements like these. Oftentimes, if you analyze them at the philosophy of ministry root, they are heavy on the CEO model and light on the gospel. It should not be, brothers and sisters. These are things that need correction and repentance. Uh, furthermore, the celebrated celebrity movements, uh, celebrated even so-called you know, Reformed theologians, which I am a Reformed uh, convicted minister myself. However, celebrity pastors have sought to gain congregations in a movement that's been dubbed New Calvinism, which we have closer, at least superficial, relationship with in this church. But nevertheless, we see many in that movement falling prey to the pressures of culture as well. It proves to us that neither celebrity nor CEO model is effective for truly growing the church. We need to go back to the very things that are the root and ground of our faith. How can a church be fortified? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, the gospel, not forgetting we were cleansed from our former sins and recognizing that the faith that we have obtained is of equal standing with the apostles by, verse 1, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is true effectiveness. This is true fruit. <coughs> Excuse me, what does fruit look like? Fruit, of, uh, uh, fruit in your home might look like your children having a growing interest in the gospel, confessing that they believe in Jesus Christ and know that they need him, to cover their sins. And they truly believe, they tell you at some point, let's say, yes, he died for me. Mom, dad, I want to be baptized. I want to talk about my faith with one of the elders in the church. I want to move to obedience to Jesus Christ. In so many childlike words, you might hear something like that. I'm telling you, that's fruit. That has happened in this congregation. Pray it happens more. There are many in this congregation being raised in Christian homes that should at some point realize this gospel if the Lord is a merciful, confess their sins, and seek to be baptized. That is, identified in that outward sign with unity with the body of Christ and all who take refuge in Him. That's what fruit looks like, one example. What else does fruit look like? Husbands, fathers in your households, are you making the Word of God the central priority in your home? Are you gathering your family around opening the Scriptures? We call this family worship. We've made it an, an uh, ideal, we've made it a value in our church to encourage, to endorse, and to exhort you to be obedient to. Fathers, husbands in this place, have you made it a priority to assemble with the saints of God every week, even when you're on vacation? Let me make it sting a little bit. Let me just add a little weight to your conviction. Perhaps the Lord has more for you to seek uh, or, or to follow in faithfulness to Him. You know, and not to do my own horn or anything, but I discovered early on that even though at first, to my shame, it felt like stress to rearrange the schedule on vacation to make room for worshiping with God's people, it is in fact one of the greatest blessings. If you can meet family members that you have never met before when you are uh, somewhere else on a Sunday, what an amazing opportunity that is. Wait, you find a good church online, you ask your pastor for a reference perhaps, and it's yes, in that area, you know, and down when we were in Tampa Bay, Florida, there was an awesome church, just great believers. We've gone to a church in Florida twice on vacation. 
So you have the opportunity when you're on vacation to touch base with family members you have never, never met before. And I'm talking a family that's closer than your blood relative that was you know, even born to you. I'm talking a family that's so close that it's bonded to you basically, or not basically, essentially, by the blood of Jesus Christ dying for both you and them. You see, these are the things as we increase in our desire and love for the Lord and as we add to our faith the supplements, we begin to grow and that growth shows up in effectiveness and fruitfulness. And these are just a couple examples that came to mind of what fruit looks like. Fruit looks like, furthermore, adding to your faith these supplements. That's what Peter would say. When you begin to have a deeper desire for virtue, the moral excellencies of God, a love for the word, an exciting uh, uh, anticipation of what you might discover there. When you have a deeper knowledge of what the gospel is, when your kids ask you, Daddy, how can I be saved? Mommy, how can I know Jesus? And you actually have something to say with confidence. Then you'll, that's fruit. Self-control, a dominion within, a growing understanding that I need to model the, the virtues that I love and appreciate in Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so it goes through that list. Second major point this morning, a fortified faith yields eternal kingdom growth. We've just covered. Secondly, eternal kingdom vision. And this is that perspective point, that way of viewing things, that mindset, that paradigm shift, that worldview, correction. What kind of correction does Peter say is the result of these supplements? Well, listen in verse 9. Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So two ways your perspective changes. When you add to your faith these supplements, first of all, you're correcting nearsighted blindness. Nearsighted blindness. Now, uh, I used to wear glasses, then I got LASIK. But you guys, if you have poor vision, know that, uh, what uh, farsightedness, right? Which is like you can see better close than far or whatever. But, I mean, my eyesight was bad enough where it was dangerous to drive. I don't know if they call that legally blind, but it should be if it's not, because it's just not safe. But then when the corrective procedure took place in my eyes, it's amazing. It's like a miracle happened. And there was things that I didn't even realize on the periphery that were happening at any given moment. Yet I was a victim of something like nearsighted blindness. What is nearsighted blindness? Well, in context here, your blind spots become as big as anything that is bigger than you. Your blind, so if you are so focused on yourself, that now we're talking spiritually, if you are so consumed, self-centered, and recognize this is one of the biggest idols in our culture, you know, uh, believe in yourself, like Matt Troella said, <clears throat> preaching to us yesterday, what if you're a moron? <laughs> believe in yourself. Wait, I love the way Troella puts it sometimes. Believe in yourself. Yeah, well, what if you're a moron? Well, Bible teaches that everybody outside of Christ, reforming our minds, changing our minds, and changing our hearts, we are a moron. Worse, we're enemies of God. Believe in yourself. Yeah, you should believe that enemy of God that you see in the mirror. You should believe that idiot that never follows his law that you look in the mirror every day when you wake up. What is our culture telling us? Well, our culture is advocating in this self-worship, this unqualified self-esteem, in this self-centered, you know, uh, narcissistic idolatry, it's advocating that we be self-centered, self-affirming, self-referencing. And what happens is our vision becomes narrowed. So all that we can see is ourself. And spiritually speaking, we become so nearsighted, we are blind. One of the biggest spiritual awakenings for me in my own theology, my own understanding of the gospel, was when a preacher stood, and I can't even remember who it was who first said it, but said, it is not about you. 
The gospel is not first and foremost about you. It is about the glory of Almighty God. Most of my life I had heard, you know, a Veggie Tales version of the gospel. Uh, God loves you. What is it? God loves you. You are special and God loves you very much. Well, there's truth to that. But understand, before you repent and believe, you are a loathsome enemy of Almighty God. And sorry, parents, but you need to reinforce that message with something more biblical. Not a VeggieTales version of the gospel. You need to teach your children that until they repent and believe, they're enemies of Jesus Christ. Now, God did send his love on us before we even loved him so much that he died in our place. But why was his death required? Because we deserve hell. That doesn't make us special. That makes us a sinner in need of a Savior. That makes us someone hell-bent and worthy of God's judgment, and God will be glorified in the destruction of the wicked. God will be glorified in the bright burning fires of hell for all who do not repent, Jesus Christ, because his justice will be featured eternally in the wrath that is poured out on the wicked. And that sounds difficult to hear. You bet it is, but it's the truth. And if you do not acknowledge this truth, you cannot grasp the gospel in its fullness. But when you do, what you realize is that anything short of the truth of the Bible makes you a victim of nearsighted blindness. Oh, it's all about me. I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than my neighbor. God judges on the curve. Look how bad culture is. Surely I'm okay. And we judge ourselves by what we can do. And this is just another way of the blind spots telling us that there's a way of salvation outside of Christ alone. This is radical autonomy, which means self-rule. This is the self-worship of our age. But what the scriptures do is they correct our nearsighted blindness. Like that LASIK procedure that I went through or the glasses that maybe you wear. All of a sudden, that which was on the periphery that you were unconcerned about and didn't even realize comes into focus. And the nearsighted blindness is corrected. And you realize it's not about me. It's about God's glory. And I've been going through life seeking my own happiness as my highest priority. And all the while, I've been sinning against the holy God. Now I realize I'm guilty, and I must bow before him, seek his mercy and forgiveness, and embrace his gift of salvation, namely his own son, sent to die in my place. This is the vision-correcting process that these uh, supplements yield, like a fortified faith yields a correction of our vision. The gospel does as well. Secondly, it maintains an atonement perspective. The second part in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. And in his blindness, what does he forget? He's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You can be so blind and oblivious, naive, and uh, really stupid is the best word for it, that you forget that you need a Savior, or worse yet, if you once trusted uh, a Savior, at least superficially, in your understanding, you forget that Jesus Christ died for you, that you deserved hell, and by His mercy and grace alone, He extended to you salvation. What a horrible thought. What a horrible thought indeed. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind, and in his blindness, he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. But what Peter says is one of the values, one of the descriptions of the benefits of these supplements what are they again? Of course, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. It helps you maintain that atonement perspective. It helps you remember that it's not all about you, that Jesus Christ died for you. And thank God for these remembrances. Now, among these atonement perspective tools is the Lord's table as well. 
You might ask yourself, why do we again and again come to the Lord's table, so to speak? Why do we have pictured before us the juice, you know, the cup and the bread? And kids, I want you to remind us again, what does the bread remind us of, kids? Shout it out. What does the bread remind us of? What's that? The body of who? Body of Jesus. And kids, what does the cup remind us of? The blood of Jesus. That is correct. Why do we need that constant reminder? It's to maintain an atonement perspective. When you approach the Lord's table, and please do so only if you are a believer, if you've trusted Jesus to die for your sins, you've repented, believed, and you follow him. When you approach this table, what you are doing is holding yourself accountable to the truth that were it not for the grace of God, evidenced in the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood, you'd be a hell-bent sinner with no hope. But when you come to the table and you realize that when you believe in Christ, it is, to, it is, so to speak, to partake of him, the gift of his body and blood, that's what taking the body and, and, and or the bread and cup internally represents. It's Jesus giving me uh, himself as the bread of life that I might live forever. Jesus giving me himself, his blood that washes away my sins, and recognize that I am absolutely dependent on the blood of Jesus, and it helps to nurture and maintain that atonement perspective. I had a little project. I won't give you my, oh, maybe it's a future sermon. I'll spare you uh, more complexity on this point for the moment, but you can do this project yourself. What I did is I just asked myself, hey, how do each one of these supplements relate to the cross? relate to Jesus' death. In other words, how is virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love related to the gospel? And I'll just give you the first one as an example. It occurred to me as I thought about it that virtue, which we've learned, means moral excellencies. It presupposes a standard of moral excellence. Virtues is that ideal, what's holy, what's righteous, what's true. And Without that, there is no such thing as sin. Jesus Christ embodied the ideal of ethics. That's the philosophical language would be the ethical ideal. That means the highest example of righteousness would mean the standard, the metric, the measure by which all other righteousness is judged. Now listen, we live in a world that's obsessed with justice. Categories of right and wrong are used freely. But is the right metric used? No. Almost all the time, outside of the preaching of the true gospel, it's an idea that I came up with myself or that I learned from uh, somebody that I place a lot of weight in, like an academic, a philosopher, a scientist, or somebody else that is culturally important or influences people online as a social media influencer or whatever. And that's where I get my idea of ethics. That's all idolatry. Jesus Christ embodies the highest righteousness, the ethical ideal. And therefore, as you think about it, when you behold Jesus Christ and the virtues that he exhibited in his life, you see by that standard where you fall short. What is sin? According to Romans 3, 23, it's falling short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ, in his virtues, embodied the standard of moral excellence. And every time you act in a way that's not like Jesus, you prove yourself a sinner. You fall short of his glory. Therefore, when he changes your heart and you begin to follow him, look into him as the embodiment of moral virtues and seeking to emulate that and grow in your sanctification, which means being changed to be more like Jesus, changed to be more holy. You can see how these qualities right here, just by one example, they help our atonement perspective. 
Virtue is not a thing unless there's sin. I'm not virtuous because I sin. Jesus is the only sinless one. His death paid for me, and his death secured for me not just my salvation, but the promise of the abiding Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will lead me into all righteousness and truth as I follow him and will give me increasing growth to embody in myself those virtues as he gives me the ability to grow in my faith. Third major point, a fortified faith yields eternal kingdom growth, eternal kingdom vision, and three, consummation. What is consummation? What's the fulfillment? In this sense, or in the context here, it's the path unto glory. It's that manifest salvation. You guys remember the picture from last week? Heaven's stairway touching ground, right? And in Jacob's dream, what's pictured there is a glorious promise that there's a connection between the otherwise unreachable, unattainable holiness and infinite reality of God and all his glory. How can I get there? I'm a sinner. I'm finite. I will die. I live in a cursed world. I'm guilty of sin. How can I attain unto the top of that staircase? A little uh, spoiler alert. Can I build the Tower of Babel to get there? No. Tower of Babel is destroyed. Instead, the stairway comes from heaven down. And so the connection thereby is established between heaven and earth. Now, one day, by the blood of Jesus Christ, purchasing your soul and promising you eternal life, when you die and your body is raised, as we said last week, you will ascend unto glory. This is consummation. This is the future that we have, and that walking in this way assures us that we are on the path. Therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Oh, the reassuring feel of those stair steps under my feet of Jacob's ladder. What do those stair steps feel like? They feel like virtue. They feel like knowledge, if you will. How do you know, another way to say it, how do you know you're on the path unto ascension, unto glory one day, to be reunited, fully reconciled with the Holy God, full manifest promises of your salvation? Well, the assurances are a growing, a desire, and adding to your faith of supplements. We are not saved by our works, but our works evidence the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. They evidence the work of the Spirit in us. Peter says as much, verse 1, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we obtain the faith, by the righteousness of Jesus. But how do we know we've obtained the faith? In part, it's a growing desire for these supplements, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And so you see, a fortified faith yields eternal kingdom consummation. That is the assurance that as we persevere, kingdom access will be gained for those who follow in this way. Verse 11 tells us this, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this brings up our final point this morning, ministry. A fortified faith yields fruit. It yields eternal kingdom growth, eternal kingdom vision. Again, these are the benefits of the supplements, if you will. It yields eternal kingdom consummation. It is, that is to say, the pathway, the journey that we've referenced in Psalm 119, unto glory. Uh, and finally, it yields eternal kingdom ministry. That is to say that the calling of encouraging the church unto growth and godliness was the philosophy of ministry, if you will. It was the mission statement of the Apostle Peter. He tells us this in verse 12, Therefore, 
Right, so, you know, on the basis of what I've said before, that word indicates, of course, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. A fortified church, you could summarize perhaps in three statements drawn from this, these few verses. A fortified church is established in truth, secure or stirred by reminder, and able to recall. Are you established in the truth? Do you know in your heart of hearts and is there fruit in your life that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord? Have you repented of your sin? Have you declared your allegiance, come what may, to Jesus Christ and the calling to walk in His footsteps? If you have, and if you understand the gospel, even on a basic childlike level, then you have experienced a mighty work, sovereign miracle, the Holy Spirit establishing you in the truth. Jesus is my Lord. I am a sinner. He saved me. I love Him. The gospel can be as simple as that. And this is what it means to be established in the truth in the most basic sense. It's the foundation. It's the root of our faith. It's the miracle of spiritual understanding. It's what the Bible calls being born again. It's what true conversion to Christianity is essentially. It's a fundamental change by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, worked by His Holy Spirit in our hearts. Therefore, a fortified church, this is square one, each member, true member of that church, is established in the truth, has foundations, a confession of faith, and knows that Jesus Christ is their Savior and Lord. But this, is this enough, just a one-time confession, and then you get your, you know, uh, Hellfire Insurance card stamped, you keep that in your spiritual wallet, and if you're ever pulled over by an angel, you show him your license to glory? No. A fortified church must be more than just confessionally established in the truth. She must be stirred up by reminder. Why do we come here every Sunday? Why do you guys suffer through me speaking for, you know, hour after hour if you've been here through the years? Well, insofar as this gives us a vision for ministry, it's because preaching, rightly practiced, is following the example of the apostles when they said, as long as I am in this body, Peter, I will stir you up by way of reminder. I need it, you need it. We need the regular proclamation of the authority of God's word to stir us up by way of reminder. Did you grow weary this week? Were you tired in your walk with the Lord? Have you ever been tempted to despair? Have you wrestled with fear? Has your faith been challenged by circumstances around you? Have you experienced so much sickness in your family that it begins to wear you down? I've had conversations and myself that can relate to many of these challenges. What does this demonstrate to us? We're weak and frail and we need supplements to our faith. And what is one way that we can avail ourselves of them? by being stirred up by way of reminder. So hold me accountable, as it were, to this vision for preaching. Pastor, I need you to stir me up by way of reminder of the very things that will fortify my faith when it is challenged and when the Word of God is preached in this application dutifully, rightly divided, it will promote and hold out as virtuous and glorious and valuable and precious and desirable the virtues, the knowledge, the self-control, the steadfastness, the godliness, the brotherly affection and love that mark the changed heart 
of the believer. A fortified church is established in truth, stirred by reminder, and finally able to recall. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall, and may be able at any time to recall these things. And I'm, this is basically a biblical justification, if you will, for a catechism. Catechism just means learning by way of question and answer. That's a great way to learn, and it's biblical, because when you can give the answer to a question as a child, what you're doing is demonstrating a recall of the most, hopefully the most important things in life, namely the gospel, as you train your children. And so Peter, over and over again, catechized the church, it, uh, so to speak. And when he heard from them, no doubt he was greatly encouraged when they can tell him the basic gospel, when they could testify to these supplements growing in their life, or when they added to their numbers someone else who repented of whatever, Artemis worship in the temple of Ephesus, or maybe they were a silversmith in that place, and they profited in a very lucrative trade off the worship of the idol. And they made a sacrifice. They said, I'll lay down my silversmithing tools. I will no longer carve an idol to Diana to sell to these naive, you know, whatever, tourists who come here to pay veneration to a pagan deity. You know, that happened. That happened in Ephesus. And it caused a riot. It caused a riot. That is to say that as people grew in Ephesus... And that, not a lot, I'm certain not a majority. As they grew in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and so forth, the silversmith guild got so mad that the union that carved goddesses to Diana, maybe they didn't even worship her really, you know, they got so upset that they threw a riot in the city and they, they wanted to throw all the Christians out because, hey, if this idea catches on, there goes our trade. How many economic, you know, sources of income in American life are centered around just straight-up idolatry. Well, you see, we have a lot to lose in this nation if repentance really takes a hold. Be resolved. Be courageous. It's worth it. Those who renounced the goddess of Diana no longer use their trade and their uh, craftsmanship to, to craft idols to the uh, tourists that would come in Ephesus, they got a greater reward still. What reward was it, you might ask? Richly provided entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Where's the temple of Diana today? Archaeologists think it's under, a mud, under the mud in some swampy outpost in probably Turkey, Asia Minor area. That's where it is. No one really knows, as far as I know. She's gone. She's buried in a swamp. Meanwhile, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, has ascended unto glory, as the first to ascend, Jacob's ladder will take all the elect with him who repent and believe and trust in his holy name and will secure through his blood and through his gospel safe passage into the eternal realms where we will rule and reign with him forever. And that promise of eternal glory is worth the cost right now. I need to be reminded of that because the days are difficult right now. And so do you. And so let us stir one another up by way of reminder not just through preaching, but also in your conversations one with another, that the cost of following Christ is worth it. Finally, this morning, let us transition to communion. We said before, now one of the benefits of these supplements is that it maintains this atonement perspective, the reality of Jesus' blood and its power to wash away sins. But God has given something else to help us maintain that atonement perspective. We mentioned it before. It's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. It's the Lord's table. 
that is spread before us today. He says again in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If Peter could beg you to recall but one thing, he would say, never, ever, ever forget that you were cleansed from your former sins and avail yourself of every possible string on the finger. Has anyone done this? Yeah, you don't want to forget something, so you tie that string on your finger, right? So you wake up in the morning, why is the string on my finger? Oh, yeah, I got to bring my essay to class or whatever. Uh, I used to write on my hand a lot, you know, and so you look down in your hand. There's a shelf life for what you write on your hand, but at least for 24 hours, you can look, oh, why did I write on my Oh, that's what I need to do. This is what uh, it serves to help us as feeble and fallen creatures with our short-sighted attention span and the spiritual amnesia we often suffer with. We need a string on the finger. We need some writing on the hand. And God has graciously, graciously given it to us at his table today. At his table, when you partake in these elements, you're remembering that you are cleansed from your former sins. And as I said before, the table, and what, it, what this is, by the way, is a covenant meal representing fellowship between a Lord and his people. Now, we've said this before, but your house is a sacred place. You don't invite a serial killer to sit down. You don't invite a pedophile to your dinner table. Nope, they are to be kept behind bars. And in a just system sometimes, you know, which is woefully lacking today, oftentimes these crimes are worthy of death. No, you don't let a pedophile sit down at your table, especially if you have a bunch of kids. Who is welcome at your table? Those who you are in covenant with. You have a basic relationship of trust with. That's what it means to break bread. It's a covenant bond, whether you realize it or not, of mutual trust between you, your friends, and your neighbors. Imagine what covenant must be in place for there to be a mutual bond between you and the Lord of glory, perfect in all His holiness, never sinning, nothing to mar or stain His presence. Only the glorious reality of His moral excellence will He tolerate in His presence. Yet He welcomes you, a sinner, lowly, frail, wicked, decrepit, dealing with all of the uh, weakness of the flesh and the sin that clings to us and easily besets, how can you be welcome at his table? The same answer that Peter gives is because his blood cleansed you of your former sins. That's why you're welcome at his table. So this morning, as we transition to partaking in the Lord's uh, Supper, I beg you, treat this reverently. You will not be judged if you do not come to this table. But recognize the table is for those and only those who have confessed their sins, placed faith in Christ, trust in His blood alone. For you, the table is open. If you don't fall into that category, and these words have pricked your heart today, then come to myself or another leader in the church and ask, what must I do to be saved? And if you do that, and there's a sincere conversion in your heart, the next time that we celebrate or wherever the body of Christ might gather, the table will be open to you fellowship with God Almighty and covenant feast where he says, come my beloved son and daughter and feast with me in my presence. You wearing those white robes of righteousness washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to behold your glory and the preaching of your word and even in these elements at your table this day. I pray that they would accomplish what you've intended, reminding us of the ground of our relationship with you, that if Jesus Christ had not died, we would have no business in your presence except to be judged and cast aside to prove your glory and judgment. But Lord, because of Christ and his death in our place, he took the punishment we deserved and opened up his arms that were bleeding by the nails, piercing 
hands and side, saying, welcome my son and daughter. These wounds secure your access to my table and the eternal invincible kingdom of me as I rule and reign at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Thank you, Lord. Help us to realize these things. Equip and strengthen your church which, with courage and conviction to stand. And may we avail ourselves of these means to do so. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.